Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This episode of Start Making Sense is supported by The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. The Dig is hosted by journalist Daniel Denver and features in-depth interviews with the smartest voices on the left, from Corey Robin and Linda Sarsour to Kayanga Yamada-Taylor and Glenn Greenwald, discussing socialism, conservatism, immigration, mass incarceration, education, the media, and more. Find The Dig on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring part. I'm John Wiener. Coming up, Trump's tweets are back on page one, as the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals cites his tweets as evidence of the motives behind his travel ban. Amy Willens will comment. And we'll also talk about the UK general election last week and the historic defeat of conservatives at the hands of Jeremy Corbyn's resurgent Labour Party. Paul Mason will comment. First up, high crimes and misdemeanors. Those, of course, are the constitutional grounds for impeaching the president. Has Trump committed high crimes and misdemeanors? For some answers, we turn to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent. We reach him today in Madison. John, welcome back. John, it's great to be with you. Well, what do you think about high crimes and misdemeanors? And what does Congressman Brad Sherman of California think about high crimes and misdemeanors? Well, I think high crimes and misdemeanors are bad and you shouldn't commit them. Okay. And I think that if you do, uh, you have met the constitutional standard for impeachment. Now, you might have thought there that you heard a rather vague answer because I just said they're bad. Well, frankly, that's what the founders intended when they wrote the extensive constitutional section dealing with the issue of impeachment. It's brought up more than, you know, all sorts of things that we talk about all the time. You don't have to have a conviction in court. You don't have to have, you know, the classic outlines of an indictment. What you have to have is a broad understanding that a president is acting in a way that is harmful to the republic, that is at odds with his or her oath of office, that is damaging to the basic constructs of democracy. By that standard, Donald Trump is eminently impeachable. He is impeachable for his disregard of the emoluments clause of the Constitution, something we've been talking about for a long time. He is impeachable for numerous abuses of his authority. And, and this comes up in areas that are very rarely discussed. For instance, how he and the people around him have handled their executive orders even after they've been tossed by the courts, their efforts to continue to push forward on things where they've been told they shouldn't do it, uh, and a host of other matters related to just the day-to-day operations, which are disrespectful of the rule of law, diminishing of the rule of law. But most importantly of late is what we learned from 
the firing of James Comey and its aftermath. No matter what you think about the Russia controversies and, and all the scandals and uh, issues that are now being investigated at multiple levels, we know that James Comey was fired by President Trump because President Trump was concerned about the work that Comey was doing as the head of an investigation into, at the very least, Trump's associates, potentially Trump. That is an obstruction of justice. That is an abuse of power. When you impeached Richard Nixon, when the House Judiciary Committee moved to impeach Richard Nixon back in 1974, uh, in their first article of impeachment, what they outlined was obstruction of justice, specifically involving actions with the FBI and abuses of power. And what does Congressman Brad Sherman of California think about high crimes and misdemeanors? So what Brad Sherman did, and I thought it was a, a, a very uh, wise way to approach this, he went back to the 1974 Articles of Impeachment against Nixon, and he drew up an article of impeachment that is grounded in, you might even say an extension of, what the Judiciary Committee did four decades ago, because although the cases are very different and the times are very different, and the individuals are very different, you still have this classic obstruction of justice and abuse of power. And so he has moved an article of impeachment, circulating it now in the House for sign-ons, that uh, proposes the impeachment of the president for those high crimes and misdemeanors. He, will, he says that he will submit it formally in short order. Uh, it will then be you know, a live article of the Congress. It will be a reality. We will have an impeachment resolution in play. Brad Sherman's a smart man, savvy political figure. He understands it's a Republican-controlled Congress and that there will be resistance on the part of Donald Trump's number one apologist and defender, Paul Ryan, uh, and others in Congress. But what he says, he outlines in his proposal a series of steps that he is interested in taking that would pull the resolution, if the committee, Judiciary Committee, doesn't take it up, that would pull it out and force votes on whether to bring it to the floor of the House for consideration. Those, as he says, would be the first steps in an impeachment process. He also, in the final element here, basically sends a signal to Democrats and says, they need to understand that this isn't pure politics, that even though there are real concerns about impeaching Trump and bringing Mike Pence in as president, about seeking to impeach Trump and, particularly, and potentially rallying elements of Trump's base, about all the, you know, kind of all the tripwires that people associate with impeachment. But what, what Sherman is saying is that this stuff has got to stop that the line has to be drawn at some point. Uh, and ultimately, it becomes necessary to make a moral as well as a political leap and say that, you know, you just cannot accept the continuing presidency of a man who obstructs justice, abuses his power, and potentially could do dramatically more damage. We think that Trump firing FBI Director James Comey was an obstruction of justice. But, you know, let's be fair to Trump here. We always want to be fair to Trump on our show. Trump said he was 100 percent willing to testify under oath about his conversations with Comey, that Comey has lied about them. 
And Alan Dershowitz has said the president was within his legal authority to order the head of the FBI to stop investigating anyone. Alan Dershowitz's view is Trump doesn't need to deny it. He doesn't need to offer to testify under oath. He should just assert that he has the power to do it. And Alan Dershowitz is a law professor at Harvard. <laughs> well, well laid out, my friend, and your fairness to the president is duly noted. Thank you. What I will only counsel you is, first and foremost, the president, as regards testifying under oath, has promised to do a lot of things. But we're still waiting on dozens and dozens of absolute immediate commitments by Donald J. Trump to do this or that. And he never, he never follows through. So, you know, if he wants to testify under oath, I don't know, why doesn't he contact some people at relevant committees? They'd like to go up to Capitol Hill. They'll put him under oath today. So, Secondly, so, as regards Alan Dershowitz, I just would, would counsel that other professors at Harvard have different views, including people like Lawrence Tribe. Beyond that, I'm sorry, this is not really a debatable point. The president has great power to appoint, to remove, but here's the bottom line. Congressional oversight over the president, established in the Constitution, sets up a system of checks and balances which clearly defines the presidency as something different than a monarchy. He does not have unlimited powers. While he can order people to do things, and he can order people not to do things, if he does so with the intent of protecting himself from legal inquiry or from uh, an inquiry into wrongdoing, if he does so with the intent of protecting his associates from a legal inquiry or an inquiry into wrongdoing, that is an obstruction of justice. It is an abuse of power. He may have that power, but he doesn't have the power to abuse it. And with all due respect to Mr. Dershowitz, he's simply wrong on that issue. Some of our friends and colleagues think it's wrong for progressives to pursue the impeachment of Trump over his campaign's collusion with Russia. They say, first of all, it won't work. And more important, they say focusing on Russia is a new form of McCarthyism. What the Democrats really need to do is develop alternative policies that will win over uh, some of the white working class uh, voters who supported Trump, and that this whole impeachment track is is a big political mistake. Uh, what do you say to that? I believe that people can walk and chew gum at the same time. I know it's a hard concept, but I'm going to go with it. Here's my, my basic premise on this. I spent the weekend at the People's Summit in Chicago, uh, where we were talking with all sorts of folks from all sorts of backgrounds about moving beyond resistance, obviously resisting Trump, but also taking that next step to lay out the programs and the policies of a 21st century progressive movement. So I passionately agree with the notion that you have to develop alternatives to Trump and Trumpism. By the same token, I don't think that means that you can't pursue an effort to hold Trump to account for high crimes and misdemeanors. I, I think it would be uh, wrongheaded to try and make that division. And, and the final thing I would suggest is this. At this point, no matter what one thinks about the Russia inquiries, wherever that's going, whatever's being pursued there is one thing. The obstruction of justice and the abuse of power to limit or constrain inquiries is something else altogether. And if we cede him that power, this man will abuse it in much more dramatic ways. And so if you put impeachment off the table, I think you invite 
dramatically more significant abuses of power in the future. One last thing. We're recording uh, this before Attorney General Jeff Sessions' appearance uh, with the Senate Intelligence Committee. But let's talk about the big picture just for a minute of Jeff Sessions' uh, role and future as Attorney General while the independent counsel Robert Mueller investigates Trump campaign collusion with the Russians. Where do we stand with Jeff Sessions at this moment? Jeff Sessions is just a horrible mess of a, of a public figure. Um, this is a guy who, in his uh, confirmation hearing, clearly failed to reveal information that he was specifically asked about, not once but twice, by Patrick Leahy and by Al Franken. There is a some debate, some limited debate, about whether he committed perjury, i.e. he lied, or some other, you know, failure to be truthful, or whether he is some, you know, incompetent figure who can't remember meetings with major figures. Either one of those uh, ought to be a pretty good argument that he shouldn't be the Attorney General of the United States. Um, And then on top of that, when he got caught, remember, this guy never revealed that he had failed to tell the truth to the Senate, that he had failed to respond to specific questions. He got caught. When he got caught, he announced he was recusing himself from inquiries into these allegations of ties between Trump and the Russians. <laughs> and then he turned around and participated in meetings and actions that led to the firing of the head of the FBI, apparently by Trump's own acknowledgement, out of concern about those inquiries into the Russians. And so here's a guy who's recused himself and then turned around and participated in the major actions as regards the inquiries from which he recused himself. And I will just remind you, I'm not obsessed with impeachment. I think there's a lot of other ways to hold people to account. But I will note that in their wisdom, the founders did say that you can impeach not just the president and the vice president, but civil officers. And the attorney general is a civil officer. John Nichols, readhimatthenation.com. And read his new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. It'll be out in August from Nation Books. John, thanks for talking with us today. It's a total pleasure to be with you, my friend. Trump's tweets are back on page one after a brief hiatus. On Monday, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected Trump's travel ban, the second version, among other things, citing his tweets as evidence of his intent to discriminate against uh, Muslims. Real Donald Trump now has 32 million followers on Twitter. One of them is Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's an award-winning author of books on Haiti and other topics, and she publishes in The New York Times, Politico, and other places. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. First of all, what's it like to follow Trump on Twitter? It's like having a nervous breakdown every morning. Every morning I pick up my phone and there are these quite insane, um, delusional uh, statements from the president of the United States right into my hand. And uh, why do you do it? I want to know what he's saying. Uh, I want to know what he's thinking. I've just been trying to follow Fox News and Fox and Friends also so I can get outside 
my half of the voters who voted for Hillary Clinton and see into the minds of the other half of America. So what do you make of this uh, Ninth Circuit citing and quoting his tweets? Well, Sean Spicer said that that the president's tweets are official U.S. government statements. So it seems to me, and the, the Ninth Circuit cited that when it used his tweets to argue that the travel ban should not be imposed. So I would say that those tweets have now moved up a notch in importance for the country. And there's some other examples of where his tweets have had a big effect on foreign policy. Well, there are many, but the most recent is after the attacks in London when Mayor Sadiq Khan, a Muslim who has had a wrangling history with Donald Trump, went on Twitter to inform Londoners that they should not be alarmed at the number of police in the streets right now. It's just to protect them. And Trump took that out of context and alleged that Sadiq Khan had said they shouldn't be alarmed about the terrorist attack. And this caused even more resentment against Trump in England. And now Donald Trump, with his own personal tweets, has managed to sabotage his state visit to the UK, about which he was so proud. The Queen of England invited me to, you know. So now he's not going to go because he's afraid of protests. Why do you think Trump has chosen the tweet as his preferred means of communication? 140 characters doesn't let you say much. Perfect. <laughs> you know, this little man is using this little medium, uh, and it's it's a perfect fit. He has a tiny vocabulary. Uh, his intellectual reach is limited. And uh, 140 characters just about sums up whatever's going through the presidential mind at that moment. And he does, uh, I think he does an excellent job with Twitter. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the media were reporting that Trump's lawyers wanted to start vetting his tweets to prevent legal problems. For like him. the Ninth Circuit. Like the Ninth Circuit. What, what happened with that? One of the things about Trump is that the reason he's president is because of who he is. And uh, when his staff comes at him with something that he doesn't like, it seems to me that he <laughs> asserts executive authority and says, no, this I like, this is important. And in fact, he said that without Twitter, he wouldn't be where he is. Of course, presidents have always wanted to address the people directly without the uh, media filters. We have TV addresses to the nation. Before that, we had FDR on the radio with his fireside chats. Is Trump really any different? Yes, Trump is different because it's one thing not to want the New York Times to interfere between you and the people. It's another thing not to want your staff to consult. You can be sure that Roosevelt and Jimmy Carter, who also addressed the population directly, and Obama, who also occasionally did that, had discussed with their speechwriters, their staff, etc., what were the parameters within which they could speak to the public. They didn't just divulge stuff. They didn't just go off on crazy tangents. They spoke with authority uh, after having discussed it with informed advisors. And you can see from the cabinet meeting that Trump just conducted that informed advisors is not what he really cares about. Trump's Twitter account has grown by about 7 million followers since February. Apparently more than half of those accounts are fake. The Daily Mail reported that hedge fund billionaire Robert Mercer funded the creation of bots that automatically retweet Trump tweets. And in fact, if you go to real Donald Trump and click on followers, 
uh, the top 10, I clicked on the top 10, nine of them have uh, no personal information, no photograph, and have never uh, posted a tweet of their own. Isn't this wrong to have fake tweets and bots that automatically retweet you? What does wrong mean? <laughs> so not only of the new 7 million are about half bots or what we in Haiti would call zombie accounts. Yes. But um, 15 million of his 39 million uh, followers are are not real. So, yes, it's wrong. <laughs> well, it's wrong for people to think, wow, the president is that much more popular than the president actually is. But I think it it probably makes Trump a little happier, too. He likes anything that inflates his ego. Let me go back to you. You were citing uh, Sean Spicer, who said recently at a press conference that Trump's tweets are official statements of the United States government. Uh, that sounds a little ominous to me. You know, and looking at the tweets that come out from Trump and and that at their content, because their content is also important, not just their existence. What's interesting to me is the kind of Soviet style of of the delivery of these pieces of uh, information. He kind of tells you what's true. He tells his followers what's true and asserts his his dominance over the truth. And as I've said before on this podcast, it reminds me of the name of the infamous Soviet newspaper, Pravda, which means truth, and which was, in perfect Orwellian style, actually a, simply a purveyor of government propaganda, in which the Soviet Union and its leaders in the Kremlin could allege that you, who were a journalist, or you, who were a militant or a protester, were a traitor and a tool of foreign powers. and. Uh, all the things that you said were the opposite of the truth. That's what Pravda alleged. And then the government could go and use that against you in a court and put you in prison, whatever else followed. The, the Soviet Union, the former now Soviet Union, is still doing the same thing. They've just imprisoned the guy who uh, put together the protests. And I'm sure Trump is looking at that and thinking that's fine. But but Twitter is being used as a mini Pravda for Trump, and he turns truth on its head. And the people who read him, who are his targets, that is his base, believe him. And I believe the opposite. I'm sure when they read the New York Times, they believe that's fake. And it's it's of a piece with the way he behaves about the courts. He's telling them that all journalism based on fact is untrue, and all journalism based on him is true. But of course, he pays what seems to us to be a very big price for tweeting. Namely, he's probably going to lose his travel ban case at the Supreme Court. But I don't think he really cares about the travel ban. I think he and Steve Bannon are quite aware that they might lose this in the Supreme Court because of his tweets. But what it does is undermine the courts with the, with the Trump base, because then Trump can say, look, these people want to let, and this is his basic argument, this is the dog whistle underneath what's happening. These people want to let Muslim radical Islamic terrorists into our country, and we don't, and they've stopped us from banning them. And when the terrorist, eventual terrorist attack happens, which of course it will, then he can blame that on the courts. We've only got a couple minutes left here, and you are also our Ivanka Watch correspondent, The Guardian, on Tuesday published a big expose of work in an Ivanka Trump clothing factory in Indonesia. What did you make of this report? 
Well, it's an interesting report. It's all about how poorly people are paid, how Ivanka has factories in China, but she's moving toward places like Indonesia. It's called the rush to the bottom, where you can pay even less to your garment workers than you pay in China with even fewer protections for these people. Obviously, no maternity leave, no family leave. These people are paid so little, they can't travel back to the villages nearby where their family actually resides, so they never get to see their families. I say, if Ivanka Trump brings more examination of the disgusting garment industry throughout the world, I'm all for that. But uh, she's no different from most people who sell garments in the United States. And the only thing I would argue is that she shouldn't be in charge of the economic empowerment of women in this administration if this is the kind of factory she runs with mostly women working in it. Amy Willens. Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to talk about capitalism and socialism in the British elections. Theresa May, the conservative who took over as prime minister after the Brexit vote, failed to win a majority in the elections there due to the surprising strength of Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. For comment, we turn to Paul Mason. He's an award-winning broadcaster and writer on economics and social justice. He's written many books, most recently, Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future. He writes a weekly column for The Guardian. He spent 12 years as a BBC correspondent, and he was an award-winning broadcaster at Channel 4 News. He's also a contributor to The Nation. We reached him today somewhere on the street in Sheffield, England. Paul Mason, welcome back. It's great to be speaking to you. Well, last time we talked with you was before the British elections. You closed by saying Jeremy Corbyn was, quote, one of the best leaders we've ever had, close quote. Apparently, a lot of voters felt the same way. Yeah, and what happened has no parallel in modern British politics since 1945. Labour didn't win, but then they won a moral victory because the whole purpose of the election, it was an irregular election, it wasn't a scheduled one. The government called it to get a bigger majority. It was predicted on the night before to get a majority of 100 seats. And in the end, it got no majority. There is no what we call in Britain the hung parliament, which would be like as if Congress was controlled by nobody. So Theresa May, the Conservative Prime Minister, is clinging on. But what has happened is, as we have analysed and poured over the figures, it looks like, you know, really massive numbers, not just of under 24-year-olds, but of under 35-year-olds, something like half of all under 35-year-olds voted for Labour for a party that was vilified by the media as almost kind of terrorist-supporting threat to national security. So this wasn't supposed to happen. It defied what passed for common sense. You bet. (laughs) (laughs) It, It defied what passed for common sense. What kind of campaign did Corbyn run? He ran a two phase campaign. The first thing was they started off really on the back foot. He was polling 25% and the Conservatives were polling 50%. Remember, we have sort of four or five parties here in the British Parliament, but they're the two main ones. Um, the first thing he did was claw back to about 35 by publishing the most left-wing manifesto of any social democratic party in the world. It was renationalization. It was 
what we call Robin Hood taxes or wealth taxes. So not just taxing the incomes of companies and rich people, which he was going to do, but also taxing uh, the wealth of rich people, uh, the un- unearned wealth, the, the property speculation, uh, tax on share dealing. So as these billions racked up in the manifesto, he also said what we're going to spend them on, which is free college education for everybody who wants it. Uh, which is revolutionary and it's not surprising. So many students came out to, uh, so many students came out to uh, campaign for the Labour Party in the last few nights of the election that on some urban streets people were opening their windows and saying, "What's going on? Is there some kind of disturbance? Why are a hundred young people coming down my street and knocking on my door?" It, it felt like a, a sort of velvet revolution in parts of Britain. Of course, Corbyn did not get a majority. As you have said, he's not going to be the prime minister. So what exactly did he achieve? The first thing Corbyn achieved is that he made left politics attractive and acceptable to the mainstream. We've now got mainstream politicians who were one year ago heckling him in the, in the, uh, the Labour caucus in the parliament, actually cheering him and standing up and cheering him. The other thing Corbyn did is he energized young people. And I don't mean politicized young people. I mean apolitical young people. Numerous grime artists came out for Corbyn. And they brought their fans out. There was, a, there was one group that made a record that became in the top four on iTunes in the United Kingdom. It was banned from all the radio stations. Really basically supporting Corbyn and dissing big time the Prime Minister Theresa May. It became a cultural phenomenon. And as a result, many people are waking up this week and saying, look, everything is now possible. And what will happen now? What kind of coalition is Theresa May trying to put together? In the British political system, the party that gets the most seats is allowed to try and rule as a minority. And this is what Theresa May is doing. But she's being propped up by a very unusual and very right-wing small party called the Democratic Unionist Party, of Northern Ireland. This is a sectarian protest movement that has its own links to the sectarian terror groups from the 1970s and 80s uh, in Northern Ireland. Anti-abortion, anti-gay rights, it does not believe in climate change. Uh, you will recognize them, the whole of its politics from, from the Tea Party and even the libertarian right in America. She's now reliant on 10 parliamentarians, 10 lawmakers from that party to keep her in power. So, so far, she hasn't made any major concessions to them, but the whole thing is unstable. And therefore, we here in Labour, we are convinced that at some point this government will fall. And in the British system, even though Labour has far fewer seats than the Conservatives, the next thing that has to happen before an election is Corbyn gets the chance to form a government. So Corbyn gets the chance to try and put together a rough majority in Parliament which would have to come from the Scottish Nationalists and Liberal Democrats. So let's talk about the where this leaves Brexit. The Tories had uh, decided to use Brexit to smash what's left of the welfare state. Where are we now? Yep. Well, it is amazing. We are now seeing openly argued and logically worked out uh, the following. Key thinkers on the right of British politics are now saying to stop Jeremy Corbyn, we have to be prepared to ditch everything. We have to be able to be prepared to ditch what is called hard Brexit, which is a walking away from Europe without a deal. We have to be prepared to ditch austerity. So we've had seven years of spending cuts and uh, 
you know, an attack on the welfare state, they're going to be prepared to ditch that. So it's really obvious that they are in panic mode. I mean, I, you know, as, as, a, as a reporter on British politics and economics, haven't seen the ruling class of Britain in a panic like this for a long time because they realize that their, their defense lines are falling away. You know, the normal defense lines of British capitalism run not just through the Conservative Party, but through the Labour Party. Once Corbyn took control of Labour and, and decisively moved its, its political program to the left, then the only thing standing between the working class and the young people and the ethnic minorities and the elite is the Conservative government. And that just effectively fell. It fell apart. It's a minority government. It has no power. It has no power to legislate. So they are frantically trying to scramble together what is called the soft Brexit middle of, of, of politics. And you're seeing strange alliances now formed between conservatives and the centrists within Labour and the Liberal Democrat Party, which is our third party, to try and put together some proposal which keeps Brexit on the road, but, fall, but steps back from the extreme form that Theresa May was pursuing. And so in, in one day, Jeremy Corbyn has also changed geopolitics. So the whole dynamics of the European Union now change. Jeremy Corbyn is sometimes compared with Bernie Sanders. What, what are the lessons here for American politics? The first lesson is that if you have the combination of a very sincere leader and a, a well-worked-out program, that's not enough. The left also needs a ground game. So we had the ground game in taking over the party two years ago, the left, uh, in a way that Sanders didn't, especially uh, in terms of the primaries in the southern United States. We now know what it looks like to run a campaign as the left. But we have this movement called Momentum, which is a movement of activists who support Corbyn within the party, a little bit like the people for Bernie Sanders. And that movement was able to have a million conversations in the space of six weeks on the doorstep, deep canvassing, just the way the Sanders people did. The Sanders people trained us to do it, and I think they are learning as well. But the ultimate thing is you've got to learn how to turn the enthusiasm of the primary phase, which we, we saw really clearly among Sanders supporters, into enthusiasm on the doorstep. And Jeremy Corbyn, in the last phase of the uh, election campaign, really did step out of the role of party and started to speak on behalf of the nation. He'd absorbed so much pressure, so much vitriol in so many attacks, but people were starting to flock to him almost as a kind of savior figure. I know it sounds crazy, but like as a, the person who had taken all the pain and showed it was possible to go beyond the pain barrier. And I think the Sanders movement, or whatever comes after it, maybe it won't be burning next time, whoever you choose to lead the American left, the left of the Democrats, has to be somebody who can do popular politics. It's not the same as populism, but it's, the same, it's someone who is able to do, to, to, to go in, it's like in gaming, you go into the dungeon and you kill the boss. Somebody who can do that. <laughs> I call him proof you can do it. Paul Mason, he writes about British politics for The Guardian. Paul, thanks so much for talking with us today. A pleasure. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. That's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about nuclear war and football with Dante Stallworth, the former wide receiver and a 10-year NFL veteran. 
That's this week on Dave Zirin's new Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.